Canuck Central, hour number two here in the Kintec studio. Hour two of the program is brought to you by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned VC company helping local business since 1892. Hour one of the program, we had Irfan Gaffar talk about what's coming up this offseason, what could it look like for the Canucks. Always a few really good tidbits in there from Irf, including one where he said... He does not think the Canucks will buy out Oliver Ekman Larson this summer. If you listen to Earth's weekly hits, you know that he's often correct about some of the things he thinks about. (laughs) So I I do take that with some weight when he says OEL will not be bought out. We also discussed how real this recent run is from the Canucks winning eight of their last ten. Um it's hard to craft out a big offseason for the Canucks without buying out Oliver ekman Larson pick. Yeah, there's probably levers that they pull before then. Like Brock's probably like if you were to go through the process of money clearing ventures. Yes. Power ranking them in terms of ease to do, return value. Mm-hmm. What's the first one on the list? Oh yeah. For you, is it OEL? I I I think I might want to try like a Brock trade before then. Right. Um, OEL opens up seven million dollars cap space right yep. away. But but there's a penalty to doing it. Yes. Whereas trading Brock, there's not a penalty, mm-hmm. assuming you're not retaining, which I don't think they should. If they were going to retain on a Brock trade, they would have done it already. I firmly believe that. Mm-hmm. So their bet is they get to the summer and. Cap space is a little bit more open, and Brock is more tradable. If not Brock, then Connor Garland. And the thing is, like Brock's going to probably have career highs and points this year. Yes. So I understand the hard line to say, we're not doing this. Yeah. Brock has uh, he's played better of late. His problem this year has not been production. It has been his defensive play among the worst defensive forwards in the league over the course of the season. Is he tradable? He hasn't been tradable at his full cap hit to this point. Could that change in the summer? That's one of the bets they're making. I believe Connor Garland would be tradable in the summer. You could theoretically trade both of them, keep Beauvillier. Beauvillier, I would think, going into his final season under contract, is very tradable at $4.1 million cap hit, especially with the way that he's shown. You're not trading all three of them, but you are trading at least one. Mm -hmm. Where else are you opening up cap space? Yeah, after that, it gets a bit tougher. (laughs) It does. Because I... Like, the obvious answer would be Tyler Myers. uh, And I'm a firm believer that they're going to pay the signing bonus and want to get a return on investment on that to say, we we just paid $5 million. We're not going to light $5 million on fire. Let's go get 50 games out of them. And that allows you to buy 50 games of Philip Johansson in the AHL. Mm -hmm. That allows you to buy 50 games of unsigned free agent prospect that hasn't, uh, European or college free agent, stays in the AHL. You don't have to force anyone in. I I don't really like that. If you keep Myers, do you then let go of Ethan Bear? Yeah, that's a possibility. And to be honest, I like, like Bear I, more than Myers. I, I wouldn't put it past them to, to combine a couple of pieces right. to put with a Brock Besser or a Connor Garland. To, to me, it's 
Right now, the only guarantee on the right side next year is Philip Hronick. Correct. Beyond that, it's anybody's guess. Man, go through the whole roster. <laughs> right now, the only guarantee is like Elias Pettersson, Andre Kuzmenko, Ilya Mikheyev. I'll, I'll put Dakota Joshua as a guarantee. It's fair. Actually, I, I won't. Because <laughs> if, it, if it means clearing up some money, and yeah. they're like, hey, we really like that Dakota Joshua guy. He's like the David Putney in the trade right now. <laughs> He's a good punt returner. Yeah. If, 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 if you could clear all of Brock Besser's money and you got a functional demon back, but the other team was like, hey, we also wanted Dakota Joshua. Are you saying no? Because mm. in that scenario, what do you believe in more? Your ability to find that D-man again or the ability to replace a forward at, a, at less than a million dollars? Probably the D-man. Like the D-man is harder to yeah. find than Dakota Joshua. So at that stage, if someone's like, if you want us to take Brock, we also need Dakota Joshua. Yeah. You're just caving on that immediately. But could Dakota Joshua be a guy whose value at next year's trade deadline is just I, <laughs> unreal? <laughs> I hope they resign him. I think he's an awesome player. And yeah. in, in that role, in a fourth-line role, I think they should keep him. But if you're telling me you're getting like a PK D-man, that's good. I'm not just saying just like any $3 million D-man. Like a real helps you D-man. Mm-hmm. I mean, you are caving on so much immediately. They Like the biggest priority for me in the offseason – is a left-shot defenseman that can PK. Whether or not you bring Oliver ekman Larson back, you do not have that. Quinn Hughes can play on the PK. He shouldn't have to. Oliver ekman Larson can, can play on the PK. Neither of them profile as somebody you want to be out there as the first guy over the boards when you're killing a penalty. So how do you find that player? How do you rectify that? Because fixing the PK is another one of these major questions that you have in order to being a decent hockey team next year. And personnel. I know Yannick always goes on about that. Like, personnel is the biggest thing. And we were talking about a pre-show. Yeah. Okay. At bare minimum. Yeah. Bare minimum. Mm-hmm. Over the course of a season, you need at least eight guys. Yes. Okay? Injuries happen and all this sort of stuff. And you need probably 10 to 12 guys. But at bare minimum, let's just say, at bare minimum, how many... Guys, can you write in stone yeah. of the four fours and four demon that you would most regularly use? How many guys do you actually have right now? So you've got Elias Pettersson. And and by the way, like not the face-off no. guy. So he's just out there. Uh, JTO would still expect to play a role. You don't want him to play the big role, but he's still playing a role on your PK next year. Okay, he's probably like, ideally, he's on your second or yes. he's one of the extra guys. Yeah. But, again, if you went into next season and JT was one of your main eight, mm. is that a good outcome? Probably not. Um. <laughs> so, so, really, we have one. Mikheyev is two. Mikheyev's another. Okay. Has Joshua done enough on the PK? Probably not for me. He's, he's a fringe he, guy. He's probably in the Miller camp. I think you only have. And, if and Myers is here, he's a PKer. Oh, man. But, again. You so, know, he's still the, say, like, same he's outcome. He's your best though. penalty kill defenseman right but now. Say, like, that's not a great outcome. So then we're just saying you have two of the eight. And probably Philipronic. Right. Who's probably going to be the second right shot. Yes. You have three of the eight. And at least, like, you want to, you need five guys on the PK. Now, it's easier to find PKers than power play guys. Yeah, you're not signing five guys to play PK, though. No. But so that's why JT's probably, fun- yeah. is part of the role. His function is there. It's why you're hearing so many links to Barbashev already. Because he is a great PKer. It'd be nice if he can win face-offs. He's like. 
forty one. Oh, he's not gonna be a draw. Like, he can't be a centerman. Don't don't give well, me what the, are we talking about? You, you can't give me the Curtis Lazar line on on Ivan Barbashev next year. Well then I'm not entertaining this Barbashev stuff. Yeah. Because it's not solving a problem. Right. You still need to win faceoffs. And I, I I'm trying to get JT down to like twenty minutes a game. Right. Who's having success, by the way, uh winning draws. Yes. The the big concern that I heard for three years is well if you trade Bo Bick, who's <laughs> gonna win faceoffs? Well, you know who's winning faceoffs right now? JT Miller. Yeah. Surprise, surprise. What have you not what have we not talked about at all since Bo Horvat was traded? How much faceoffs matter? Right? You haven't even noticed it with Bogon. They're they're forty nine point eight percent, I think, since the trade. But JT himself is uh, well above the mark. And JT has a better faceoff percentage than Bo Horvat does right now, since the trade. Fifty three percent to fifty two for Horvat. I uh, so I had a couple of takes I wanted to uh, get off my chest here today. Oh, here we go. Since we're on the topic. Uh, J.T. Miller, the conversation all year long has been, J.T. Miller, why would you choose J.T. over the captain, Bo Horvat? Why would you do that? Felt like Ray Liotta and Goodfellas. Why? Why would you do that, Patrick? Why? And yet here we are. JT is about to have an 80-point season. He is playing well as a second-line center after everybody wrote him off through the first little bit of the year. This guy can't play center. Get him out of here. Seems like a lie now. He can play the middle, and he's played it well over these last couple of weeks. He has better production than Horvat since Horvat was traded. He's scoring goals again. He's been better at five on five. He's more engaged physically. Go back and watch JT's first shift Saturday night against the LA Kings and count how many hits he throws in that first shift. When I watch JT, this is the JT I expected when they signed him. And as much as you want to have the argument they should have traded both, that was never a part of their equation. Jim Rutherford said it on this very show. We wanted to get one of them locked down. They chose their guy. It was JT. And guess what? They chose the right guy. And they are being proven right right now. Not only because of the production in the recent play, but also because shorter term and is cheaper against the cap. And when they made that bet, that was part of their equation based on what Horvat and his camp were projecting for their next contract. Good on Horvat for making good on his deal and hitting that home run. But the Canucks made the right decision on how they wanted to move forward because they've got a pro- player that's been more productive than Bo Horvat, has shown he can play second line center, and is now the cheaper player going into next year. I will say, um, phrase I've adopted this season is, you know, hockey is a game, the business is winning. So you're right on all that sort of stuff. Yes. One thing is Horvat's 11-5-3, or his team is 11-5-3 right now. Mm-hmm. All that stuff is great. And you're right, and I agree with you. Obviously, 
don't need to push me over very far to, to talk about the Miller versus Bo conversation. Yes. But wins are always the most important thing. Yeah. And right now, Bo's team is winning, and he's playing a role, uh, getting a lot of toughs in the island, especially with Matt Barzell out. And that team right now is winning. Right. So in the here and now, uh, ultimately, you know, wins are always better. But as this grows along, mm-hmm. and we start looking at it next season and beyond, I'm with you. They made their bet. Again, we can talk about should they have done both. Mm-hmm. Could could they have done both? That's fair. But in their process of their decision, they've been proven right. Yeah. And we can argue should they have done a different decision? Sure. But for their vantage point, this was a win in their eyes. To look at this and say, this is the version of the player that we need to see more consistently, for sure. But JT at his consistent and Bo at his consistent, there will be a gap there. And it will be proven out as we go along. Just because of the point production. Like, right now, and I know this is a, a problem Bo had here, of the, the wingers were never consistent. And how do you develop chemistry? Yeah. How do you do top out on production? But right now... PDG and Brock being your primary guys you skate with, and you're still scoring and you're still producing. What does it look like with a McKayev next to him? What does it look like with better wingers? Like great players need great players. We have this insistence on saying you're not great unless you're doing it alongside mediocre players, or yeah. your coach isn't great unless you're doing it with AHLers. Great players still need great players. Jordan needed Pippen, and on and on and on. Taze needed Kane. McKinnon needed McCarr. You need great players with you. JT at that point, when another star player or another good player comes alongside him, that that to me is going to provide the baseline of 80 points for him, more so than having to always do it for himself right now. Uh, a couple of uh, thoughts, reactions coming in, 650-650. Miller, whoop to do last two weeks playing better. Too much money for an old guy. Uh, everyone is playing better now that they don't have any pressure. Need to do it when it counts. And this one, Horvat was so much better than Miller first half of the season. Why wasn't Miller this good earlier? Uh, we can make as many excuses as possible for Miller. There is uh, good reason to believe he may have been playing through an injury earlier in the year that could have been suffered in the first game of the year. We've talked about it a ton on this show and on this podcast feed. So not needing to go over that again, bottom line is, you're right. He does have to be better in October. None of what happens now matters if you can't get it done when games actually matter. And yeah, we can still joke, oh, the Canucks can top out at 93 points. There's still a pathway to the playoffs, however improbable. I joked about it on Saturday. Yes. And, uh, and now it just feels like it's it's manifesting after a win at Anaheim. <laughs> I heard it was a legendary. I was joking. Okay, some people took it seriously. Yeah. Can people not understand like when there's a joke? Well, there was a while there where I was saying 95 points is still possible for the Canucks. And people would take it seriously after yeah. every time I tweeted it. I, I got on. a tweet. Someone was like, Shut up! Here's here's this chart that they have zero percent chance. It's like, yeah, I'm I'm joking. It's like this is entertainment. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm here to entertain. I'm here to make a fool of myself sometimes for your benefit, folks. Yes, uh, Bick is Maximus Aurelius. <laughs> Doing it for the fans, <laughs> win the crowd. 
Doing it for the fans. So that was um, that was my take on JT. Mm-hmm. Now, I also tweeted this out just before 5 o'clock, and we haven't gotten it to it yet. So I'm going to get rid of this one as well. Quinn Hughes back-to-back 60-point seasons, mm-hmm. or 60-assist seasons. Hasn't been done since uh, Coffee and Leach back in the early 90s. Not bad company, I'd say. A few months ago, I was saying Quinn Hughes' season is being incredibly underrated. I still believe that today. Certainly from a national perspective. I feel the appreciation for Quinn Hughes' season has really starting to grow around the market as you're starting to see it backed up with wins. But when you're a defenseman having a great season on a really poorly defensive team, a really poor defensive team, if I could speak English properly, on a really poor defensive team, you aren't going to get any accolades unless your name is Eric Carlson. People continue to say Eric Carlson is going to win the Norris. I saw an article last week that executives, coaches around the league expect Eric Carlson to win the Norris. And I don't mean to do this to diminish Eric Carlson's accomplishments this year. And he may very well get to over a hundred points, which is an unbelievable number for defensemen. Quinn Hughes is a better candidate for the Norris in my eyes than Eric Carlson is. Quinn Hughes is plus 18 at five on five this season for the Vancouver Canucks. Eric Carlson at five on five is plus seven for the San Jose Sharks. Quinn Hughes has not mattered for Quinn Hughes, whomever he is playing with. The Canucks have vastly better defensive results with him on the ice than they do without him. It's actually the opposite for the San Jose Sharks, who are more permissive defensively with Eric Carlson on the ice. The only thing is they still end up scoring more than the chances they give up. And when you look at the definition of the Norris, to bring this up again, it goes to best all-around defense player. That is not, to me, Eric Carlson, who is 100% offense, zero defense. If you watch a San Jose Sharks game beyond just the highlights, you'll know what I mean. Trust me on that. But with Quinn Hughes, you saw it basically playing all of the last five minutes last night or thereabouts. You saw it in LA on Saturday. He has been incredible and has gotten better at both ends of the rink as the season has gone on. And that's why I say Quinn Hughes is a stronger Norris candidate than Eric Carlson is this year. You know how much I love defense. Yes. I'm totally here for the take that Eric Carlson shouldn't even be top three in the Norris. Mm -hmm. I agree with everyone. I think he's going to win it because 100 points is 100 points is 100 points. And it's freakish to see that. It's like Derek Jeter winning all those gold gloves. Did anybody watch him play defense? Or is it just like, oh, he's Derek Jeter – and he hit 300 again, so let's give it to him. What? <laughs> Anyways. I'd be for Charlie McAvoy winning, mm-hmm. before Dougie Hamilton winning. Like yep. He's having an impressive offensive season and doing it defensively as well. Yep. I'd probably even be here for 
Miro Heiskanen mm-hmm. and Adam Fox. 100% on Fox. And yet, I think Eric Carlson's, like, intellectually, I think Eric Carlson's going to win. Yes. In my heart, I don't think he should win. Because it's just, to some level, it's it's stat padding. And now I feel like this is the one where we're going too far of, well, you led the league in points. Here's your Norris. Mike Green got it. And it just feels like we're, we're, we're going too far on this. The, the Norris has become either a reputation award yep. or a points award. And it's not going in the spirit of the award to the point where, like, I know this argument has been made. It's like, just make a new award so Jacob Slavin can win one. Yes. Because <laughs> he's the best offensive D-man in the league. Well, it's like why Dowdy, it took forever for Dowdy to win one. Uh, mainly because he was going up against Carlson a lot of years. But, like, Carlson deserved to win all those Norrises, the two Norrises that mm-hmm. he has. And maybe should have won some others in those years where he was really at his peak performance. But this year ain't it. Like you do have to play some level of defense in order to win this award. And Eric Carlson does not really play some level of defense. So that should, in theory, disqualify him from the award. Quinn Hughes, okay, if you want to talk about defense or at least impact on defense, at five on five, Quinn Hughes has been on the ice for 23 fewer goals against than Eric Carlson has. He's been on the ice for 77 goals against. It is by far the highest mark in the league. There's only one other player that's above 70, and it's Justin Falk. Tyler Myers not too far behind at 68. But that's an aside. And it's part of the reason Quinn Hughes deserves more credit. You see some of the defensive results for other players on this Canucks team and compare them to Quinn, well, something doesn't add up here. How is this guy so much better than everybody else? So if you're taking in those results, correlating it to his team's results, I think that should be a factor. I'm not saying Quinn Hughes wins the award. To me, he's a better candidate than Eric Carlson. It's one of the reasons to get excited for next year, too. And, again, I know that's hard for people to hear. Mm-hmm. It's like, we've seen this movie again. The internal improvement, like Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson, are going to be 5% better. 3 yep. to 5% better. Yep. And you you want to talk about shaking off the October rust and making sure your stars are, are high-performing right away? If they are, like, this guy's having a season, and he's done it in some terrible circumstances. It's uh, Dan Riccio and Bick Nazar still to come. Don Taylor is going to join us. And do want to get a thought in on the World Baseball Classic and the lack of international hockey, or at least quality international hockey, we've had at a senior men's level in recent years. We'll get to that next. It is Canuck Central. Talking all Canucks all the time. It's Canucks Talk with Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drance. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Canuck Central in the Kintec studio, hour number two, and the final segment brought to you by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned BC company helping local business since 1892. Also, March 21st, the Canucks for Kids Fund telethon game as the Canucks host the Vegas Golden Knights. That's tomorrow. Donations can be made now, and everyone who donates before midnight on Tuesday will be entered to win a brand-new 2023 Toyota Corolla Hybrid. Donations can be made online now at Canucks.com slash telethon. It'll be hosted by Elliot Friedman and our friend Satyar Shah. Uh, so check that out, Canucks.com slash telethon. A lot still to get to. Don Taylor is uh, is going to join us. Um, we are currently watching uh, the World Baseball Classic, and the Ottawa Senators up one nothing on the Pittsburgh Penguins. Yeah, I was just laughing. Uh, we went to break, and Artem Zub had just come on the ice. Yeah, and we came back, and he was still on the ice. <laughs> he had a f- over a four and a half minute shift. Um, but the reason I, I bring up the World Baseball Classic is because. Uh, all of this international baseball has made me yearn for more international hockey. Let's uh, let's have this conversation with our next guest. It's uh, Don Taylor joining us here. Donnie and Dolly, 10 to noon on Czech TV. Uh, we're seeing how successful this World Baseball Classic is. Not just, uh, well, more so around the world than it is, I guess, in North America, Donnie. But, man, it just... It keeps making me think about how much we need a regular international hockey event to get hockey fans to enjoy. Yeah, and I just wonder if people will accept a World Cup of hockey versus the Olympics because the history is there with the Olympics. But whatever the case may be, we we need something. And I think more than anything, you you don't want Connor McDavid, uh, you know, even players from other countries other than Canada, Leos Pedersen. Quinn Hughes, you don't want them going through their entire careers without representing their country on the Olympic stage or on, 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 on a stage that at the very least is the equivalent to the Olympics in terms of uh, caliber, in terms of interest and all of that. It would be really difficult um, to see Conor McDavid retire without having represented his country at, at that level. And I realize he's done world juniors, but I, I'm talking about the big daddy and and that, that's the Olympics, or if they could get the World Cup up to that uh, level of interest, it would really be uh, it would it would it would really be sad to see that. So I, I you know it's hard sometimes for us as normal people, mortals, to feel bad for players when they're you know as successful as they are when they make as much money as they do. But I would feel that way if some some of these players retired, finished their careers, and they weren't able to represent their country the way, let's say, Sidney Crosby did in 2010 and 2014. That'd be tough to see. It's it just so silly. Like, I, I'm not even the biggest baseball fan, but if I yeah. scroll in across and I see a, a world baseball game, you know, I'll tune in for an inning because you can see the obvious passion. Yeah. And, and you can see like Mike Trout playing meaningful games for the first oh, time finally. in his life. He's <laughs> thrilled. He's like, yeah, I love the world baseball yeah. classic. It's, yeah. it's, like, it, it's such an easy win for a league that constantly – knocks over easy wins and you know the world cup of hockey i get it like there's there's no history there but at, at some point you have to make your history then like yeah. you just have to commit to it for 20 years and say this is what we do like this is who we are as a league and our history will follow us yeah i think if they if they if they indeed go with the world cup of hockey um you know i think they'd have to forego a competition in the olympics because when the world cup of hockey that you know a couple of times it's happened when the 
you know, when the NHL players were going to the Olympics, it was, yeah, great, but what about the Olympics, right? So you'd have to pick one one of the uh, one of the other. The other thing is the timing, and I just, you know, when the when the World Cup takes place in, in September, it just doesn't. It, it, for me, it just doesn't work. I like I like it. I like the Olympic tournament mid season. I think that really works. It just feels like hockey. And I know the argument is, well, you know, 72, the Summit Series, that was in September, uh, and that seemed to work just fine, and previous Canada Cups did. The difference there is that back in the day when the Summit Series took place in 72, and when, when the Canada Cup first came around, there was that other level of hate and politics there that isn't there anymore. And I think you need that hockey feel now more than you did uh, back then, it was so unique back then, so strange. And, the, you know, the, the Russian and the, and the Czech players, they were real enemies back then. And you just don't have that anymore. So uh, I, I just I, I think you need that midwinter feel about the tournament. So whether that's the Olympics or, or the World Cup, I, I don't know. But I, I'm with you guys. I just want to see I just want to see something. You know, it's uh, it it just brings in a different level of fan too, right? Um, you you get more casual fans for international games uh, that may not be watching baseball that often. Like that Trey Turner home run had like eight million views on yeah. Twitter in yeah. three hours. Uh, Aaron Judge's sixty second home run didn't even do three million views uh, after like, yeah. after he hit it. So you know, it just brings in a different level of audience. And I, I hope NHL players are watching this and, you know, they're probably thinking they keep complaining about escrow and things like that. <laughs> well, you know what? This would be a great revenue generator if you guys get your bleep together and figure out how to put on a World Cup of hockey. But, yeah, and it's, and it's not only, uh, you know, it's not only the players, but uh, yeah. owners and, and everybody else as well. And you're so right about what happened with Trey Turner the other day and his game winner and just how many casual fans that would have brought in. And you could say the same thing, and I know this is not you know, a World Cup or a World Baseball Classic, but the Olympics in 1980 and what happened there. Yeah. How, many, how many non-hockey fans watched that just because it was so damn exciting and, and it was the Americans who just kicked ass in that tournament? How many and movies how many, did they make around that? Yeah, well, there you geez. go. Yeah, there was, I think, yeah, well, there was one bad one and one good one. Yeah. So there, there's that. But... Um, just how many new fans they created. You, know, you you throw the American flag on, on anything or the Canadian flag on anything and you watch. And that was just, it was just so special. And how many of those players went on to the NHL and to stardom and, Oh, it was just, and, and there was good versus evil in the eyes of all sides involved. And yeah, it was really, really special. And the NHL could use a shot of that. No, no doubt about it. Uh, so Donnie, you've seen a lot of Canuck seasons. Uh, what are you buying into uh, from this uh end of this season or is there anything to buy into uh from your vantage point oh gosh um i'm i've, I've been a rebuild guy all the, all along so i can't i can't shy away from that and and they are now i believe five points away from being ineligible for uh the first overall pick of the lottery so that's uh that's a little bit uh, disappointing it's just i don't know this is just i've seen a lot of seasons i've seen them all you know i, I remember 1970 71 and this has to be the strangest. I know maybe we say that every year, but just the ups and the downs. And like the drama with Boudreaux seems about five years ago. It wasn't that long ago. You know, we're not that far removed from it. That was this season. It's unbelievable. The injury to Demko, all the drama, who they go to unload. Are they going to rebuild? Are they not going to rebuild? Oh, look at this. Maybe they have a good time. Maybe a good team. Maybe Demko is back to uh, – 
his normal spectacular self. There's just so much going on, you know, coaching changes and uh, the up and down emotions that people feel in Canuck Nation when it comes to Rutherford and, and Alvin. Do they know what they, they're doing? Is this a mirage what we're seeing now? Is it the real Canucks? It's just, it, it's just a crazy, crazy season. Um, I think what we've seen here as we approach the end of the season is that there's a strong belief, and I kind of get it, that the core is there. They feel the young core is there and that there's, there's no need to rebuild. And the best thing to do is just to get the best pieces possible around those players. And as long as Demko is playing well, maybe you could do something in a Western conference where nobody really knows who's going to come out of it. And maybe not this year, but maybe next year, something special happens. Don Taylor joining us here on, uh, on Canuck central. I'm just like, I'm just not sure what else they could do because they, they traded Horvat. They traded Chen. They shut down Mikheyev. Yeah. I, Maybe they could play Demko less. That would that would help, you yeah. know, considering the way he's going right now. But a lot of these games, at least from the skaters, I mean, it's it's mostly just been Pedersen and Hughes and Miller and Kuzmenko all just playing really well. That's that's led them to a bunch of wins. Well, and and here's the part I forgot to mention when it comes to the strange season, and this is going on right now. Rick Tockett, right out of the gate. I'm not going to play my best players a lot. I, I, I don't want to wear them out. That's not the way I do things. He must have you know, got here, saw how good these guys were compared to everybody else, and thought, yeah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. We're going, to, we're going to play the hell out of them. So that's another strange part of the season. I think Rick Tockett's an honest, sincere, well-respected guy, but what he said right off the uh, bat is kind of opposite to what he's doing right now, and a lot of people would have liked to have seen him do what he's done what he said he was going to do right off the bat that's play these guys less maybe you lose you know more games than you, you win and yep you end up getting a a better spot in the lottery so again adding to the to the strangeness of it all but it's obvious they believe in these guys and uh maybe rightfully so for cutout fans i hope so but again just a, a real real strange season uh, you mentioned Quinn Hughes, and you know last night he gets his 60th assist of the season and back-to-back years, and you know, he's in fantastic company all of a sudden. You know, I, I, as great as the season is, like I think the best season of Quinn Hughes is still to come, and you know th- that's part of the reason it, it's easy to fall into the trap of being optimistic because hey, it could be next year. But I still feel like the ceiling of Quinn Hughes is yet to be discovered. Well, you look at his goal totals. What is he at now? Five goals. Yeah. So I, I. I when I watch Quinn Hughes play and you see players, you know, these guys are supreme athletes and I get the feeling that Quinn Hughes is somebody who is not afraid to work on his deficiencies, that he wants to do that. There, anybody who watches him on a regular basis, who knows a little bit about hockey knows that he could probably improve his shot. And if that, if that ever happens, then you think his goal-scoring totals are going to go up. I don't think the assist will suffer. So, yeah, I think there is another level there. And obviously, maybe some he could you know, increase his strength. So I, I agree with you. Just It seems like – I'm not going to say the sky is the limit, and I'll, and I'll tell you why in a second, just because that, you know, that's, that's tough, too. He's already pretty good. But let, let me get back to what I alluded to there. Today we mentioned Quinn Hughes in the same – I don't know if you guys have gone through this today – but we mentioned Quinn Hughes, not you know in terms of overall talent, but just statistically. We mentioned him in the same breath as, and this is just a fact. He's he's doing some things right now 
that numbers-wise, statistically, are comparable to what Bobby Orr did, or the same as what what Bobby Orr did. Mm-hmm. I, I, guys, honestly, God, I, I thought I committed a crime by, by mentioning it. We had so much blowback. How dare you compare anybody to Bobby Orr? <laughs> and it was, and and I just want to say to people, it's not about nobody's saying he is Bobby Orr. We're just saying that the numbers he's throwing up right now. In, in some cases, he's in the same category statistically as Bobby Orr. It's it's pretty impressive, but my God, like honest to God, I thought I was going to lose my job today for a second. Well, it's true. Like we were talking about it last night, and only fifteen D men have had multiple sixty assist seasons. Uh, Eleven yeah. have done it in back to back years. Now that Quinn's done it, and you know, you mentioned the like the strength aspect. Like it's not that as if he has to get stronger. Like he'll naturally get stronger because he's yep. still just twenty. Three years old, like he will naturally get stronger in that better defensive play, and he's already improving defensively. But he's going to get better and stronger on that end of the ice, and that to me is where just the natural improvement's going to come. Yeah, and then plus, guys, I mean, he's a defenseman, but you look at all these defensemen that he's been compared to. Not again, not not compared to, but he, that he's he, he's getting into the same group as statistically, like Brian Leach, like like Bobby Orr. Like Paul Coffey, the, the, the comparisons, you know, the statistically are there. And what did those guys do defensively better than anything? They, they came up with the best defense, and that's a great offense. They had the puck all the time, and that's what he's like. He has the puck all the time. He's just incredible. But I don't know his exact possession numbers, but they have to be off the charts, I would think. And and that's that's a great defense. And plus, not only that, but I don't think he gets pushed off the puck like people uh, criticize him for. He's done, he's gotten way better uh, at, at that. He's gotten way better at escaping, way better at getting in, out of trouble with his great passing. You know, he's already improved his game. It's just that it's, it's, it's gradual. Uh, we expect a lot from him, so maybe we don't give him the benefit of the doubt. But I, I, I just think there's, 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 a, there's another level for him, too. That's pretty scary if you're an opponent. The, the thing about Pedersen and Hughes and, and watching them right now and how good they've been lately, it, it makes you want to believe that there can be a quick turnaround here because they're just so good. Like, how many times has this team – I mean, you've said it all the time, Donnie. Like, you've never had uh, a franchise defenseman like Quinn Hughes in this organization's yeah. history. And here's Pedersen who, you know, if he remains a Canuck long-term is – is going to give Henrik Sedin a run for his money for for best player, best uh, center to ever yeah. play for this franchise. Yeah, and, and you know, it, it's funny because I know that people listening to this and um, anybody who watches our show will say, "Well, Donnie, you talk about a rebuild, and you know, like that's that's an insult to Pedersen and Hughes and and Demko and everybody else that you would consider part of the core." My thinking is those guys are so good that I think it's just, it's fine. You know, the, the, the pieces that you had to deal with in terms of rebuilding, you know, Miller's going to stay, Horvat's gone. They traded away the first draft choice they got for, for uh, Horvat. My, my thing with rebuilding is I just wonder the way things are gone as slow as, as long as it might take, it might be faster than trying to do it the way you think it's going to be quicker by getting a bunch of veterans in. So I don't know if I've made any sense there. I'm trying to, but you're right. The core is pretty strong. I, I, I get all that. 
I just wonder if there isn't a different approach than, you know, something we haven't seen since 1970. On Pedersen, I was kind of wondering last night and, and today, like for if you're Elias Pedersen and you're going to have a 100-point season, 105, maybe even 110, maybe that's a bit too lofty, but still, you're going to hit triple digits this year. What is the um, the need to play another year to, to go sign the big deal? Like I, I think you could explore it this summer if you're from the Pedersen camp. Yeah, you can get a little bit more leverage for you know 300 extra K AAV, but yeah. to me, like I, I think the Pedersen camp should be trying to cash in on this fantastic year he's having, and why risk an injury or something like that? Yeah, if he wants to stay, right? Sure. Yeah, it, it, it seems like he's happy the way he's playing and, and how driven he is and mm-hmm. Part of that drive would be, hey, like I want to see this through, and I want to turn this franchise. I want to help turn this franchise around. Well, Bill, I mean, you just talked about it. Miller did the same thing. Yeah, he, he just did what you, you you talked about. So it can't be. Look, you're coming off a great season. The organization clearly believes in you, given your numbers, given the ice time Rick Talk is giving you, and and Bruce Boudreaux before that. Do you jump on it now? That's going to be that's going to be really really interesting. They can't start talking with him in in, in the summer, and does does he go for it and get that burden off his chest and move forward from there? Donnie, we always appreciate the time. Thanks for this. Anytime, guys. Always fun. Love it. Love Mondays. Yeah, uh, there he is, Don Taylor, Donnie and Dolly, ten to noon, Check TV, and on Elias Patterson. I uh, I did not know this. But as we were interviewing Donnie, uh, I saw it pop up on my timeline on Twitter. Elias Pettersson uh, is, according to John Gibson, one of the uh, few scariest players in the NHL to play against. And this is going back to 2020, this article was from. And it's funny because he talks about a goal that Pedersen scored on him in 2020 that is essentially the goal that Pedersen scored on John Gibson last night. So I want to read it quickly because it just shows and highlights just how elite Elias Pedersen is. This is from John Gibson in the Players' Tribune. Sometimes you'll see him miss wide on... These when he's really trying to pick the near post, or sometimes you'll see him miss high when he's trying to do what he did here. He knows that the space right to the side of my mask, just above my collarbone, is really hard to defend. If he goes further over with the shot, it's actually easier to get my left elbow higher and cover more space. But that little gap beside my head, I can't get my arm up into that space try it right now raise your elbow and see how there's this little triangle between the top of your head your elbow and the base of your neck don't do it if you're driving he's shooting for that and you know what when he hits it all you can do is tip your cap and move on there's no stopping it he's a pretty special player that is from john gibson one of the best goalies in the national hockey league talking about a goal Pedersen scored on him years ago and I don't know if Patterson read this, but he did it to him again last night, picking that same spot. And we see him do it all the time on uh, on the power play. The goal he had against Dallas last year yeah. lives in my head rent-free all the time. It was the one where he's coming down the right wing, and I think it was Pavelski yeah. kind of challenging him, and he just, <laughs> like the way we've seen him do it. And I, I think it was Mike McKenna, because we, we, we sp- spoke a lot to Mike last season, and he came on the show, and he was like, the – 
the degree of difficulty of that shot and for where he put it, he essentially has like a four inch window. Yeah. To put it between the defender into the spot of the net on Jake Ottinger. It's a degree of difficulty through the roof. And the way he just scores it, he made it look so simple. That's what he can do, man. Yeah. When I watch Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes, it's like watching Ted Lasso and him tapping the believe sign. Honestly, (laughs) I get it. I totally get it. And I know that's crazy for a lot of people. Like, I made the joke last week. It's like, how can you keep believing? And, and the line I used was, hey, get down or fall down 53, t- 53 times, get up 54. Yeah. That's just what you got to do. And, like, it, it's it's weird to live in that world of this guy is so good and these players are so good that you just have to believe that it's going to break through at some point. They still need a lot. I we know. all know that. Yeah. They still need a lot. And... It's very hard to see how they're going to put enough around them to truly build a contender. But they do have the hardest pieces to put in place. And that's the one thing that I continue to go back on when it does look very murky as to how they are going to put it all together. Uh, Quick thought on the World Baseball Classic. We uh, started the conversation with Donnie there. It's... um, I've never really been into it all that much. And the more that I've watched this tournament, the more I've gotten into it, the more I've realized it's less a North American thing and more a worldwide thing. And if I translate that to hockey, it makes all much it makes all that much more sense as to why it would be a big deal if you continue to build out a world cup of hockey and how much that could grow the game and grow audiences around the world for the game of hockey. It just takes time. Yeah. Right. It just takes, it takes time. consistency. You had it in 96, 2004 and then 2016. Yeah. It's and the phrase I've used before and I just use it with Donnie. It's like, you have to make your own history. Yes. It might suck to begin with. And the world baseball classic has been going on for how long now? Yeah. Uh, 2006, right? Yep. It just takes time to build. And the support you get globally is what eventually is going to spur it to it being having a certain level of credibility locally. Yeah. But that's what you need. You just need to build it. You need other countries to start buying in. You need the world to start buying in. And suddenly, everyone here locally will say, all right, if we're the ones hosting it, if we're the ones the driving force behind it, we'll take it seriously. And once you get to that stage, everyone's in. But it's probably going to take 20 years. Yeah. But you have to commit to the idea of we are doing this for 20 years, and this is who we are as a hockey league now. This is part of our revenue streams, and this mm-hmm. is part of the way we grow the game. And we, have, if you're willing to commit to Arizona for as long as you have, yeah. you should be willing to commit to the World Cup of Hockey and see the benefits in 2043. Yeah. And every sport, well, I shouldn't say every, because football doesn't really have much of an international presence. Basketball... Uh, the World Cup of Basketball is also in a very much building phase where mm-hmm. they're trying to make it more of a deal than it currently is. But look at even what the Ryder Cup has done for golf and how big of an, of an event that is. Like international events bring more casual fans than you can fathom. And you may not care about that, but especially especially if this is an arm of hockey-related revenue and HRR, then it will create a better product in the NHL because you'll have 
more revenue. More revenue means higher cap space. That means more flexibility for teams. And it makes for a better environment for the game. And that's why this matters for the whole hockey ecosystem and why they desperately need to figure it out. They're not doing the World Cup of Hockey next year. They already announced that, but they better figure it out. And I'm talking even before the Olympics. Get something down so that you can start having it consistently. It's Dan Riccio, Bick Nazar. We're back again tomorrow for the Canucks and L.A. No, not L.A. The Las Vegas Golden Knights uh, live from Rogers Arena. It'll be telethon night. Massive day. Uh, massive day. Canucks for Kids Fun telethon night. And uh, we'll have Friedman and Sat hosting that. Bick and I will be on for intermissions and post game as well tomorrow for the Canucks and Vegas Golden Knights from Rogers Arena. For Costa and Josh, my co-host Bick, I'm Dan. You've been listening to Canuck Central.